Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe it's been at least three days at most since I was on the air last, but I'm always glad to be back on the air even after, say, a three- or four-day lull. And as I've said before, you know, life can't always revolve around podcasting, because if it did, um, it would be fair to say that life would probably be a little bit more dull and boring. As much as I enjoy podcasting, I have to remind myself that even though it's a hobby, there's uh, more to life than just uh, podcasting, which is never a bad thing. Well, when I was on the air last uh, with you guys, uh, we... um, we're getting ready to um, learn um, about what was going to lie ahead. I mean, we learned from our previous uh, podcast episode about uh, Benedict Arnold's uh, ability to uh, stave off um, a further British advancement in with regards to the British Naval um, Squadron being at Lake Champlain. I mean, they did prevail at Valcour Island. But luckily, Benedict Arnold, what was left of his naval forces, were able to hold somewhat of a high ground and be able to uh, keep uh, British General Guy Carleton and his uh, naval um, units from advancing further, uh, not just along Lake Champlain's waters, but eventually into what would become the Hudson River Valley. So there was um, whatever um, success uh, Benedict Arnold had, it was with regards to keeping uh, the British from reaching their ultimate goal much sooner versus later. Now, in this uh, podcast segment to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold, we're going to learn about some changes that will be occurring not only on the side of the British in terms of officer, um, oh, how do you call it, officer restructuring. In other words, whom is going to be leading the command uh, going into New York And we will also learn on the American, a.k.a. Patriot side, whom really is in command and whether or not that has a positive or a negative impact on Benedict Arnold. So in in other words, rather, I should say we're going to be learning uh, more about Arnold's involvement in the New York campaign that ultimately will lead up to um, Saratoga. Remember, folks, uh, Saratoga from the uh, prologue as well as from the uh, second uh, podcast uh, episode. In other words, uh, we needed, in order to uh, better understand who Benedict Arnold was, we had to um, retrace what was going on at the present moment in um, 1777, or rather late 1777, uh, from September to October of 1777. We had to understand what finally led up to the... um, the straw that broke the camel's back for Arnold. So here we are, not too far from from uh, getting back to where we were um, early on, and now seeing firsthand the full uh, scale effect of what is about to unravel. So we have a lot of ground to cover, folks. And if any of you are wanting to know just how many pages is this podcast episode per your journal log, Kirk, what, what is the number? It's six. That is the max, folks. But we've got 60 minutes to get this right, and we better get the show on the road. And so here we go, folks, with our first leadoff question to this uh, podcast segment episode of The Tragedy of Benedict Arnold by Joyce Lee Malcolm. 
What British officer led troops under General Guy Carleton's command, which resulted in driving out Continental Army, or rather in driving out the Continental Army from Quebec, Canada during 1776? I don't know if many of y'all would know this British officer, but of course it's always easy to to assume that whenever we learn of British officers, it's the first one that will often come to our minds is usually General Lord Charles uh, Cornwallis, but I can tell you this much, the answer is not General Lord Charles Cornwallis, it just so happens to be a fellow by the name of Major General John Burgoyne. For those of you who are Revolutionary War buffs like me, uh, Gen the name Major General John Burgoyne is definitely a familiar figure, and he will continue to be more of a familiar figure as uh, time goes along, not only in this episode, but in the next uh, episode when I'm uh, back on the air with you guys. Burgoyne's involvement in the Revolutionary War goes back to May of 1775 when he first arrived to Boston just one month after shots had been fired at Lexington and Concord. He took part in the Siege of Boston, which actually started the month before his arrival in April of 1775, or rather I should say April 19th of 1775, because uh, that was uh, the, the beginning of not only just uh, the shots having been fired around the world, as Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, famous uh, poem line said, but the Siege of Boston technically began on April 19th of 1775 and ended on March 17th, 1776. And of course, what a coincidence, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. So, you know, when, yes, we could celebrate and wear all the green we want, but we should also be reminded that uh, the Siege of Boston ended on St. Patrick's Day. But of course, I don't think um, Americans were celebrating St. Patrick's Day uh, like we do in, uh, in today's time. So, Gen Major General John Burgoyne, I will say this, when he came to uh, Boston in May of 1775, he was not Major General. He was probably a private at best. However, he did not stay the entire time. Uh, that is, he did not stay throughout the entire siege of Boston. Matter of fact, he returned to England well before 1776 ended. And I wonder why. I was kind of surprised by this. He returned back to England due to a uh, lack of leadership opportunities. Isn't it interesting how, uh, from our previous podcast, we learned about how um, American officers like General Horatio Gates, General Charles Lee, just to name a few of uh, perhaps a handful of officers whom had served in the British Army during the French and Indian War, were um, truly convinced that they would uh, rise to great prominence only to um, face unforeseen obstacles that they did not have beyond their control in terms of not getting the proper leadership opportunities that they deserved and what do you know? We're seeing the same problem on the side of the British. It's an interesting double-edged sword, uh, to say the least. It's always easy to assume that every officer, regardless of what side he was on in this conflict, had opportunities to rise and be respected. But we're also, but we should also be reminded that um, 
that was not the case for everyone, and we are also needing to be remindful that even a talented officer like Benedict Arnold was in the same position. But yet, sadly for Benedict Arnold, as we will soon be learning, of course, I don't want to give it all away now, but I might as well tell you all now that isn't it fair to say that Benedict Arnold is dealing with, uh, has been dealing with competition from within where, where people either uh, below him or above are not only getting advancements, but are uh, spreading nasty um, accusations about him. Yes. So the bottom line is that not everyone is in um, full unity, even when they are supposed to be. That's the unfortunate side of the uh, greater conflict. You know, everybody, you think everyone's on the same page, but there are internal issues from within, even amongst the victors. Sometimes um, it might be fair to say that the textbooks didn't always point that out from years past. Now, uh, despite the British Navy emerging uh, victorious at Lake Champlain, Valcour Island, in October of 1776, General Guy Carleton, here was his downfall. He didn't take swift action behind trying to capture Fort Ticonderoga, which greatly perturbed John Burgoyne. Okay, so if you've um, won a battle regardless of whether it's by land or by water, yes, it, may, it might not always be good to use up everything that you have before you, but if you have enough momentum on your side, why not finish the job? Why not finish what's left of it? So in other words, had General Guy Carleton take, had he taken what he called a, a swifter approach, and by uh, not only... Um, going after Arnold's, uh, what was left of Arnold's forces, Arnold's forces along the um, along Lake Champlain would not have been able to have hold what was uh, left of a stronghold in preventing uh, British forces from uh, going further south down into the Hudson River Valley. So General Guy Carleton missed a um, terrific opportunity to capture Fort Ticonderoga, which obviously perturbed John Burgoyne. The winter of 1777, Burgoyne is still in England, but he is lobbying fervently on his own behalf to replace General Carleton as the new field commander in Canada. King George III, including Lord Germain, were behind John Burgoyne, and both of these uh, men firmly believed that Burgoyne himself had far more enterprising skills than uh, Guy Carleton. You know, when we think of enterprise, we think of uh, business. But when you hear the word enterprising, it, it, it's uh, more than just um, business or leadership uh, skills. But the reason why I mentioned that John Burgoyne had far more enterprising skills here is that Burgoyne showed more of an initiative as well as a determination behind seeing opportunities that could result in better um, outcomes for the British Army short and long term. In other words, John, if John Burgoyne knew there was an opportunity to uh, finish the job and finish what was left of the rebel forces who were trying to um, hold their uh, stronghold, he was going to go after them. 
He's not going to sit back and let them regroup. So John Burgoyne has shown more of an initiative and determination. And because of that, George III, including Lord Germain, are now going to see to it that he becomes the new uh, field commander in Canada and ultimately replaces Guy Carleton. Burgoyne won uh, command of British forces assigned to uh, take control of gaining access to Lake Champlain, including the Hudson River Valley. This campaign would be multi-tiered. Now, for time constraint purposes, uh, one of the game plans that I felt was worth uh, mentioning, actually two rather, the first game plan was to involve um, was to involve uh, making sure that uh, getting across Lake Champlain and uh, southward into Ticonderoga would be met without any resistance. But the second and the third ones are very crucial. The second assault um, force, how do I say it? One, uh, one of the uh, strategies being the second one, let me rephrase this, per John Burgoyne, involved a second assault force going west into the St. Lawrence River Valley, into Lake Ontario, then down to Oswego, which is right on Lake Ontario. It's in the heart of the um, snow belt, uh, just south of Syracuse, but it's right along the, um, along the heart of uh, Lake Ontario, where the uh, lake effect snow can really be seen at its, um, at its most... Um, what do you call it? it where lake, lake effect snow can be seen at its um, most um, lethal. Because, you know, lake effect snow, if you live along, say, one of the Great Lakes, and you get a lake effect snowstorm that could come at any um, moment, in the, uh, even in late fall into the start of winter, it can produce results that, um, that you're either accustomed to or that you simply aren't prepared for, given that uh, warm and cold fronts collide and bring bring about uh, snowfalls that are um, beyond paralyzing. So after um, Oswego on Lake Ontario, then uh, for Burgoyne, the plan would um, ultimately end in a march south to the Mohawk River in central New York and then go east to link, or rather I should say join up with the main army. It's quite a journey, but if you're John Burgoyne, it sounds like to me he's more on the offensive, whereas Guy Carleton was more on the defensive. There is one other thing that John Burgoyne needs, and this was uh, given that this was a multi-tiered approach that involved three levels. The third one, General Burgoyne needed support of General William Howe, who was Britain's chief commanding officer, whom was currently stationed in New York City. The plan for Burgoyne here was to bring Howe's army up the Hudson and meet in Albany, where New York State would be split apart in two, given so many New Yorkers were loyalists, which meant British commanders would have um, no trouble whatsoever in um, recruiting those um, whom are loyal to king and country, to join their cause. And if that's the case, opposition would be at a bare minimum. 
this is a very uh, bold uh, move, uh, but at the same time for Burgoyne, he has got to hope that um, General William Howe will go along with this. You know, there's all you know. Plans look great on paper, but you never know when leadership can change its mind at, a, at any given moment's notice. Did General Burgoyne's multi-tiered strategy face problems? Okay, you know, as I said a second ago, uh, you know, yes, we can have some great strategies on paper, but we never know what can change with the uh, leadership from within. But how do you say it? The, the plans look great on paper, but they can lose their luster if a strategy or a series of strategies uh, lead to problems that are beyond the Army's control. So here we go. Well, first off, the answer is yes. But for starters, Lord Germain approved General William Howe's plan to attack Philadelphia from the south. Given at the same time, Lord Germain had given uh, the approval for um, General Howe's forces to go northward into Albany. How in the world can General, um, how in the world could Lord Germain expect General Howe's men to go south into Philadelphia, take Philadelphia, and then all of a sudden go all the way back up north and uh, try to uh, cut off um, and try to cut off the Americans. In other words, and try to um, prevent the Americans from um, from doing what they need to do, and that is to prevent the British from splitting New York into two. So this, you know, it looks great on paper, but the bottom line is, are you going to have enough manpower to even make this happen? Well, and speaking of manpower, folks, General Burgoyne lacked manpower, meaning he doesn't have enough men on his side to uh, fight a soon-to-be war in the heart of New York State that could either make or break the Continental Army's fight for independence. Every battle that's fought is a sense of make or break. Yes, this we've seen since 1775. Here we are in 1777. We are seeing highs and lows from all different angles. So for General Burgoyne, if he's lacking manpower from within, whom is he going to have to resort to? Sure, he can spend all the time he wants trying to recruit loyalists from New York, Um to come join his uh, cause, but he's going to have to recruit Indians, folks, as a means of filling the missing gaps. And the Indians that he's going to be targeting are those from the Iroquois Confederacy, the Oneida, Mohawk, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Tuscarora. I should point out to you all that, you know, given that there was this uh, six Indian nation of the League of the Iroquois, that four of those six Indian nations fought along the side of the British. The other two fought on the side of the um, Americans. Even Indian nations, folks, were not spared from having to choose um, sides in this uh, conflict. Burgoyne supported Indian terror tactics against Americans, but atrocities that occurred also made him lose faith in ability to recruit American loyalists. 
So it's one thing for um, for the Indian nation, most notably the Iroquois nation, to uh, implement terror tactics against um, patriots. But these atrocities, if they go unchecked, can backfire. And who's to say that the Indians would not um, retaliate and attack American loyalists? So for Burgoyne, he's really stuck between a rock and a hard place. The lack of manpower for Burgoyne was was a concern on not only onto itself, but Burgoyne is also short on something else. He's sh he's going to be short on some other things that I'll mention to you here in a moment. But if there's one crucial thing that I could tell you right now that uh, John Burgoyne is short on, it's horses. Why are horses such a big thing? Well, folks, it's one thing to ride a horse. But if, if this is a time of war and you're an officer, you need a horse. You need to get around from point A to point B. You need to be able to um, lead a cavalry expedition to scout where the enemy is uh, setting up their camp. You need to scout where the enemy has been moving. Cavalry is so crucial, folks, that, you know, cavalry can um, launch a surprise uh, raid attack. Uh, cavalrymen also are light infantrymen. They're riding uh, their horses. They're getting off their horses to go um, scout, um, as I said a moment ago, to scout where the enemy's encamped, uh, where the enemy's moving. So it's not just riding a horse. It's not for show, but to be able to get from point A to point B by horse, talk about saving a lot of time. But not just riding, but not just the means of uh, having horses, folks, or a lack of horses thereof. How about logistics behind transporting soldiers, officers, even civilians? And it's not just transporting the people, but how about their uh, baggage, luggage? This becomes even more daunting. And the, this expedition that Burgoyne is partaking in, folks, whatever provisions he has, those provisions, say, in the form of food, are only going to last up to two weeks. So he has a food supply that's only going to last two weeks, and these the supplies for the hundreds also include 2,000 women and children joining the troops would require being attained while en route. So it's not just um, officers and troops that um, that the logistics applies to. If you have... if if you have um, civilians, uh, women and children whose husbands are taking up arms with uh, the crown, and of course the wife, the, the wife and their children are loyal to the crown, they need protection because if they stay at home, there there's no guarantee they'll be safe. There's a better likelihood that if they stay home, they're going to become um, targets for uh, patriots, not just soldiers, but Patriot families who are at war with loyalist families. So just keep in mind, folks, that even uh, logistics existed in uh, colonial day times. Uh, logistics is not anything new. Uh, logistics have been around much longer uh, than we uh, can could ever imagine. Would there be uh, tensions 
amongst American officers. Now we're moving into the American piece. Not permanently, but we're taking a break from at this moment from the uh, British side, and now we're moving back over into the American uh, corner. Would there be tensions amongst American officers, most notably Horatio Gates and Philip Schuyler? Gosh, I thought uh, it was just between Gates and Arnold, but remember, folks, as we're going to find out, Horatio Gates... He may be nice on the outside, but once we know him in private, we're going to really be, um, we might be shooting ourselves in the foot. So would there be tensions amongst uh, American officers, most notably Horatio Gates and Philip Schuyler? Uh, yes. Earlier in 1776, uh, both men uh, were in commanding roles. Schuyler was uh, commanding the uh, Northern Army and Gates was leading American forces in Canada. Both men um, had engaged in retreats southward, but at the same time, these retreats were happening at the same time, which leads to confusion. Gates's, Horatio Gates was intent on replacing Philip Schuyler. 1777, Congress appointed Gates to the adjutant uh, general post where he would help train new three-year recruits but Gates adamantly refused the post and received complete command of Fort Ticonderoga. Philip Schuyler went to Congress as a delegate from New York, but he too, like Benedict Arnold, had to go before Congress and clear himself of any outstanding wrongdoings deemed egregious. For those of you who aren't sure what egregious means, it's uh, another word describing um, inappropriate actions or in this case, inappropriate accusations. The accusations being made against uh, Philip Schuyler, he has deemed them to be egregious. Horatio Gates, however, <laughs> wasn't he assigned, didn't we just learn a second ago that um, he was given the command post of Fort Ticonderoga? Believe it or not, folks, he never went south to, into Ticonderoga. He decided it was appropriate to take advantage of Philip Schuyler's absence by taking prize command of entire authority over the Northern Department. Congress objected to Gates's actions by making it clear they wanted Schuyler in charge. In other words, Gates never got the okay to do this. June 17, 1777, um, Philip Schuyler went before Congress and ultimately got his post back. That's a relief. Congress ordered Gates to report to Washington, only for Gates himself to turn down once again the adjutant general post. So who is uh, now taking over for Ticonderoga in Gates' absence? A fellow by the name of Arthur St. Clair. Now, whom did uh, George Washington uh, write to on uh, July 10th, 1776? Because, um, or rather, July 10th of 1777, pardon me. I, I apologize for the uh, incorrect date there. Whom did Washington write to on July 10th, 1777, expressing um, concern about the dire matter in New York? Washington knows that New York is in... Um, serious um, trouble. Where's Washington, folks? Well, he's not sitting, I, I can tell you this much, Washington's not back at Mount Vernon. He's not living the rife, life of Riley. Washington is in Pennsylvania, um, 
he is um, having to prepare what would be for an eventual uh, combat at um, with battles at Germantown and Brandywine outside of uh, Philadelphia. His main objective now is to um, do whatever it takes to defend the city of Capital from falling into uh, British hands. So, whom did Washington write to on July 10th of 1777 regarding the concerns for New York? He wrote to Mr. John Hancock, who, um, whose signature, folks, is the biggest on the... Um, on the Declaration of Independence, because he was the president of the Continental Congress. So whenever, um, you know, you think of Mr. John Hancock, uh, think of uh, the large signature on the uh, Declaration of Independence. But Washington wrote to John Hancock advising, advising him that if anyone could help um, alleviate the crisis in New York, it would be none other than Benedict Arnold. And it's a good thing Washington wrote this letter when he did, because the day after, on July 11th of 1777, Arnold had submitted a resignation letter. Arnold is just, he's getting fed up with other um, accusations being made against him. After a while, these accusations would take a toll on anybody. I mean, draining. But... John Hancock was able to uh, write to Arnold in enough time to oversee that Arnold's resignation got withdrawn. And Benedict Arnold followed through and put aside his uh, personal anger and once again rose from the ashes to answer the call of duty. So Washington ordered Arnold to take command of Fort Edward, 50 miles north of Albany. The fort uh, was located along the first navigable place, or rather I should say spot on the Hudson River, where Burgoyne's forces would ultimately reach. July 21, 1777, Benedict Arnold arrived at Fort Edward, and July 23rd, good news folks here, he was cleared of all charges brought against him by uh, Mr. John Brown. You know, Mr. John Brown and uh, Mr. James Easton, they were the two who, um, at Ticonderoga in that um, expedition of 1775, they really uh, bore resentment. And Mr. Easton had a lot of uh, reasons to bear uh, resentment towards him. If we need to be reminded, uh, Benedict Arnold did humiliate him out in the open, and um, Mr. Easton never forgot that. So, you know, yes, Benedict Arnold can endure all the stings that aren't right, or he can overcome them, but at the same time, we should be reminded that even Benedict Arnold has stepped on some people's toes in the wrong manner. So, it's a double-edged sword that's, um, that's not always for the better. Now, yes, the good news is that Arnold is cleared of all charges brought against him, the conditions at Fort Edward, however, by the time he and his, um, by the time he and, and the number of men assigned to him get there, the conditions are not good. And we're not talking so much lodging conditions, folks. We're not talking about oh, what what are the conditions like inside the fort? I mean, we need to know if they're going to be top of the line. None of that. The conditions around the fort, and what I mean by the woods, and it's not just the forests, but what's lurking in those forests? We're not talking critters, folks. 
How about Indians? Canadians? You know, everyday Canadian people whom are loyal to the crown. British regulars whom, are, whom have a presence in these uh, thick woods. They are picking off innocent civilians, including Patriot personnel. So, in other words, nobody is safe going into the woods, folks. If you're a, uh, if you're someone of a, uh, if you're a Patriot soldier, if you're a, a Patriot dispatcher, if you're just a, a civilian who uh, is trying to seek uh, refuge, but yet you need to go forage in the forest for some kind of a wild game to ensure that you have food for survival, good luck coming out of the woods alive. I don't mean to scare you all, but just but just because you go into the woods, it's not a um, it's not a peaceful journey. There's not a, any guarantee that you might make it out alive because uh, because there was a lot of uh, brutal savagery that occurred in the thick of the woods in this not only in this conflict, but we can go back as far as the French and Indian War, where um, sadly um, British General uh, Edward Braddock learned the hard way in uh, 1755 going through the uh, Monongahela forest in uh, what we now know as uh, present-day Pittsburgh, PA. The French and the Indians slaughtered the British and, ma and pretty much massacred them. The, the Indians who were on the side of the British warned General Braddock of what could lie ahead of, for him in terms of irregular style of uh, fighting. Braddock did not listen to those warnings even a fellow by the name of George Washington tried to persuade Braddock to engage in different in a different style of fighting that was uh, non that was that would be the opposite of traditional. Braddock did not even listen to Washington's to young George Washington's advice, and it just so happened that it was uh, young George Washington at the age of uh, 23, whom was able to rescue those whom had not been killed at Monongahela or I should say it, around uh, the wilderness, he was able to uh, save whatever number that was left of uh, Braddock's whom, whom were not massacred. Those men were saved because of George Washington's um, tactics in uh, getting them out of um, harm's way. So, so the bottom line is that um, being in the woods does not always mean that you're safe. As the British advanced closer to Albany in the Mohawk River Valley, did Washington, did General Washington rather, go about sending Benedict Arnold elsewhere? Wow, here's a sudden change in plans. And of course, no telephone, no text to say, Benedict, I've got a change in plans for you on the spur of the moment. But the answer is yes, uh, given that the British did advance closer to Albany and the Mohawk River Valley, George, General George Washington did go about sending Benedict Ar Arnold elsewhere. As a matter of fact, he directed um, Arnold to a place called Fort Stanwix, located in present-day Rome, uh, which when I think of uh, Rome, New York, I think of um, being around the heart of the Erie Canal. Uh, Rome is on the outskirts of Syracuse. Now, um, the reason why Arnold was sent to Fort Stanwix was due to... Um, great potential of the fort itself falling into British hands under com Commander Brigadier General Barry St. Leger, whom was under General Burgoyne's multi-tier advanced uh, system behind attacking New York State. 
Well, besides getting Arnold to um, relocate from Fort Edward to Fort Stanwix, uh, Philip Schuyler is involved in this um, involved in the process of uh, trying to slow down Burgoyne's uh, advance. And how does Schuyler um, succeed? Well, Philip Schuyler in, um, went about um, ordering 1,000 men to perform tasks from cutting down trees along a British route. How clever. You cut down British trees and you place them along the route that you know the enemy has to take. And once the enemy sees those trees, how do they move forward? Sure, they can, you know, walk all they they can walk over them. That that is, if you're just, you know, a, a regular troop with your, um, you know, with a troop. If you're a troop and you have your rifle or musket and your um, and and your personal belongings on the back, like you know, a modern day backpack. But can wagons go over these uh, trees that have been uh, felled or cut to the ground? No. So. Now, all of a sudden, if you're the British, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You've got to now figure out where do we go next. Remember, folks, no OnStar, no GPS. If this is the only route you know, and here you've got all these trees in the middle of the road, you really are up a creek. So, yes, the cutting down, uh, the cutting down of trees um, obviously would have um, impacted the route that the British were going. Um, Philip Schuyler's uh, men also rerouted marshes to flood their path. So in other words, by rerouting marshes to flood their path, they made these uh, pathways inaccessible. British troops were also deprived of supplies, which meant resorting, which meant that uh, Schuyler's men uh, went about resorting to scorching, uh, what's called a scorched earth strategy, meaning no access to crops, cattle along the path. So, in other words, this is a strategy not only to hinder um, hinder um, getting to where they need to go, but also depriving them of fundamental essentials that could, in, that could, in worst case scenario, result in death. You know, if you, if you don't have enough, if you don't have adequate access to food, then it's a, a battle of survival, or I should say, survival of the fittest. Brigadier General Barry Saint Leger departed Montreal on June 23, 1777. He became more dependent on Indians, unlike John Burgoyne. Barry, Gen, Brigadier General St. Leger had only 340 regulars and Hessians. He had 800 loyalists and Canadians. 860 of his men were Indians per the 2,000-man army altogether. One of the worst mistakes that Brigadier General St. Leger made, folks, was that he didn't bring any artillery for a potential siege. And he was warned by those Indians whom accompanied him. He was The Indians warned St. Leger about Fort Stanwix being refitted, or I should say refortified. It, was a, it became a post of 600 Patriot men. St. Leger didn't even believe the reports as to how many men were at Fort Stanwix. But once he saw the revised fort up close and personal, he deeply regretted not having listened to the, to the Indians. This is an example here of where, you know, yes, the British could say, oh, we need you all on our side, 
But yet when it comes to the little things like this and not listening, it does come back to haunt you. Fort Stanwix, in case any of you are any of y'all are wondering, uh, the fort was named for uh, British General John Stanwix. Uh, the fort was first built in 1758 uh, during the Seven Years' War and was completed around 1762. The post at Fort Stanwix was led by uh, experienced officers in uh, Colonel Pete in Colonel. Peter uh, Gansvort, and there is a place in New York State called Gansvort, New York, outside of Albany, named in uh, honor of Colonel Peter Gansvort, including second officer, Lieutenant Colonel Marinus Willett. The battle at Fort Stanwix lasted six hours on August 3rd, 1777, but Patriot forces held their ground, resulting in British setbacks, especially with the loss of uh, tremendous loss of um, wagon supplies, uh, whatever wagon supplies they had, fell into the hands of, the, of uh, Patriot forces. So, whatever br setbacks the British had endured, big and small, these setbacks uh, had implications for them going forward with what lied ahead. Now we're going to move on to uh, Benedict Arnold. Uh, we're going to move on to. Um, not just Benedict Arnold, but what lies ahead for him with um, with regards to what he thinks he might know about Horatio Gates. So was Benedict Arnold aware of Horatio Gates' strong dislike for officers like General Philip Schuyler to General George Washington? At this time, uh, Benedict Arnold does not know this. But little did Arnold himself realize that once Horatio Gates replaced Philip Schuyler, Gates's mentality centered upon entire loyalty to him only, no respect for anyone whom could come in his way and threaten a post already bestowed upon him by Congress. I'm beginning to wonder, perhaps, and we will see, we may have to ask ourselves, is Horatio, is Horatio Gates someone who could be seen as a crab in a barrel, knowing just how high up his rank is. Is Horatio Gates a crab in a barrel? In other words, is Horatio Gates someone who can't stand to see other officers from below and above or, or within his inner circle be successful? I think we'll find out here shortly, folks. The instant, or rather I should say, sudden cause of tension between Arnold and Gates pertained to Arnold's appointment of extra staff members, General Schuyler's uh, loss of a command post meant that the men below him lost their positions. Gates was not interested in accommodating them. How pleasant. But Arnold did a noble thing by adding Schuyler's men below onto his personal staff. Gates opposed Arnold's staff additions, but then again, Gates and Arnold's staffs were hostile to one another, where brawls, a.k.a. fights, became a norm. Gosh, I thought all these, all these years that officers got along with each other. They learned to work out their differences. I'm beginning to wonder, folks, that even grown-ups, whom are officers and their staffs below, Grown-ups. They can't get along, but yet they're not acting like grown-ups. Did General Burgoyne make 
poor, crucial decisions while en route south to Albany. Yes, he did. Uh, one in particular uh, really um, took me for a curveball was that Burgoyne ordered his men to cut a road through rocky, uneven terrain, thinking it would better transport all supplies when in fact he should have used a water route south through Lake George. The improper advice, folks, came from a major, from a, a fellow major officer whose last name was Skeen, and of course he was a loyalist. You know, just because you're a, a loyalist serving in the British Army, that might not always mean you know everything. And obviously, he, this uh, major scheme did not give General Burgoyne the advice he needed in terms of uh, how to go about uh, making a, a crucial decision at a time when it mattered most. September 1st, 1777, General Gates conducted a um, war council or a war meeting on Van Shyak Island, where the Mohawk River emptied into the Hudson. Arnold and Gates, believe it or not, folks, each agreed Burgoyne was heading south for Albany. Arnold went to um, Loudon's uh, Ferry on the Mohawk River's uh, south bank, five miles where it met up with uh, the Hudson. Wow, there is something right here that Gates and Arnold actually agree upon. I wonder if there might be something else that they can agree upon, even though it could be short-lived. What approach uh, did Horatio Gates prefer to warfare? It was one that, um, that was uh, timid, meaning that Gates himself lacked the courage or the confidence behind engaging in strategies not accustomed to and preferred being defensive, meaning he constantly focused on protecting one thing at a time. General Gates's plan involved confronting Burgoyne's army by engaging in a defensive stand at Stillwater, uh, which is located in uh, present-day Saratoga County. And, and the reason why Gates wanted the, the defensive stand at Stillwater was because it was his current headquarters spot. The only disadvantage about this being for Stillwater was that it was at a low and open area where the Mohawk River joined the Hudson River. Benedict Arnold felt very uncertain about Gates's defensive stand spot. Benedict Arnold turned to a fellow by the name of Thaddeus Kajusko. He was um, an individual from Poland whom became a very uh, successful engineer for the Continental Army. And there is a place in uh, Mississippi known as uh, Kajusko, Mississippi, named in honor of uh, Thaddeus Kajusko. And so, therefore, this was uh, a smart move on Arnold's part by going to Thaddeus Kajusko, because it turns out that Kajusko was able to find a better uh, location spot four miles further north on the west side of the Hudson, being at a place called Bemis Heights which was a bluff that um, overlooked the Hudson River. Bemis Heights was uh, protected by ridges, ravines, ravines being narrow gorges with steep sides. And um, Bemis Heights also had uneven ground, uneven ground making it difficult, say, for the enemy to uh, set up uh, an encampment or for even for the enemy to place um, 
such things as uh, artillery. Bemis Heights became the perfect spot to confront the British, given they favored fighting in open fields. And believe it or not, folks, Gates, Horatio Gates proved to be flexible and agreed to move his headquarters well behind Bemis Heights. Wow. Isn't it nice to know that just for a short period of time that Horatio Gates is actually listening. He's stepping outside of his shell or outside of his bubble, perhaps. September 12, 1777, the Continental Army took up its place on Bemis Heights. September 13th, British General John Burgoyne crossed the Hudson River with 7,000 troops and Benedict Arnold led a scouting party to examine and record the enemy camp's layout. Forward to September 15th, fortifications on Bemis Heights completed. 9,000 American soldiers and militiamen are ready for the British Army. The Battle of Saratoga officially uh, began September 19th. General Gates gave Benedict Arnold command of the Army's left wing, which included Daniel Morgan's forces of sharpshooters, Henry Dearborn's light infantry uh, troops under Brigadier Generals Ebenezer Learned and uh, Enoch Poor. We have uh, the Connecticut militia, including New York and New Hampshire troops. Quite a, a good-sized number under Benedict Arnold's uh, left-wing watch. Horatio Gates, however, was commanding the Army's right wing. He was filling in for uh, General Benjamin Lincoln. General Burgoyne advanced his army into three columns, whose focus centered on disrupting the Continental Army left flank at Freeman's Farm. And I do believe that we, um, that if I'm not mistaken, I, I recall that we learned that uh, Freeman's Farm was named after a gentleman uh, by the name of, uh, whose last name was Freeman, and his property um, was um, widely uh, used in this uh, battle, but Freeman, it turns out, was a loyalist. Patriot lookouts uh, scouted uh, British movements high atop trees. Uh, Morgan's uh, sharpshooters went on the offensive and started picking apart every British officer there was, causing their own troop units to retreat in panic mode. And I'll mention this again here shortly, but uh, for, Dan for General Morgan, Daniel Morgan, his, his troops were ready to go. I mean, they actually fired without... Um, without getting uh, Gates's command, but they they didn't want to waste any time. They saw the off, the British officers and bringing their troops uh, gradually up to where um, they would eventually uh, start um, combat. But Morgan and his men were smart. Start mowing down the officers. If you mow down the officers, the British uh, the soldiers below, will not know where to go. In terms of a retreat, they may not even know how to um, regroup in the midst of an onslaught. At around 1 p.m. on September 19th, a temporary interval in the Battle of Freeman's Farm ensued, where Patriot forces arrived from the south, along with General Gates's ordering out two extra regiments from the 1st and 3rd New Hampshire to support him, including other extra units in assisting Daniel Morgan's uh, sharpshooters, whom were in need of relief. 
By 3 p.m., the battle at Freeman's Farm uh, picks up, and the intensity, the overall intensity, and the noise to the noise of the guns, rifles, muskets, to artillery was beyond loud. Morgan's forces were successful, even though they needed reinforcements, but they were successful in picking off British officers, even artillerymen, resulting in Patriot forces having multiple instances, or I should say moments, where British field pieces were in their possession, only to be retaken back by the British. It became a struggle over who could um, not only claim the possessions, but who could retain them. September 19th. September 19th, folks, uh, also saw Benedict Arnold plead with General Gates. Okay, here we go, though, folks. Here we go with uh, what now will resume with uh, conflict that's starting out small, but it's going to become big. September 19th, saw, Gen saw Bene Benedict, Benedict Arnold, tongue twister there, folks, <laughs> saw Benedict Arnold plead with General Gates for extra reinforcements to where Arnold had requested an all-out attack on British lines. General Gates first refused, but in the end he gave in, only to not order his men to be fully ready. Man, how inconsiderate. If he had ordered his men to be ready, I'm wondering if a few things might have changed on this day, because by 5 p.m. on September 19, 1777, General Burgoyne's forces gained control of the battlefield at Freeman's Farm despite having 600 casualties, and the majority of those casualties being probably by Daniel Morgan's uh, sharpshooters uh, whom were under uh, Benedict Arnold's uh, leadership. The American losses stood close to 300. Despite the British victory at Freeman's Farm, on September 19th, Benedict Arnold received praises left and right per his efforts in rallying the troops to move forward, even under heavy enemy fire, and still inflict casualties. Horatio Gates, on the other hand, resorted to jealousy and revenge. But Gates's resentment of Arnold shortly after September 19th was made worse by a letter Arnold himself wrote, providing reasons behind what could have been done differently at Freeman's farm. You know, it's one thing to perhaps offer some advice, but when you're offering advice to someone whom, is whom can be as unpredictable as Horatio Gates was, you may have the best intentions in wanting to help General Gates, but you never know how quickly he'll snap back at you. He may like you at, for at one one part of the day, but he'll hate you the next. I'm almost wondering if perhaps Horatio Gates is bipolar. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, people, but he's one of those people who's very hard to get along with. You just don't know what he's going to be like at any given moment. So, yes, Arnold wrote this letter, and um, Horatio Gates didn't like it. For starters, he... Um, he uh, submitted a report to Congress about the fighting that occurred on September 19th, but he never mentioned Arnold's name. September 22nd saw Gates himself remove Daniel Morgan's corps from Arnold's command without even notifying Arnold. 
Arnold and Gates engaged one another in a shouting argument confrontation. Gates's defense claimed that Gates himself did not know Benedict Arnold was a major general. I find that very hard to believe. Arnold went about writing a personal letter to Gates, laying out the entire history of his commanding orders. Once General Benjamin Lincoln returned to the post of division commander, Gates himself made sure not to recognize Arnold's status nor provide him with any command. I'm beginning to wonder now if Gates is relegating Arnold to the sidelines, that Gates just does not want him to have any part of anything with what lies ahead not only at Saratoga, but for down the road if Arnold chooses to be under Gates's uh, watch. However, Benedict Arnold is still staying put. He's not leaving. He's staying because he knows just how, ma how many people care about him. Soldiers, other officers, they all care about him. So he's staying behind because he knows just how many officers and soldiers care cared for him. And I'm beginning to wonder when the next major battle of Saratoga ensues, how can Arnold be of um, use? Will Arnold do something even more inspiring, even if it means challenging the authority of Horatio Gates? Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to um, learn about um, the second battle of Saratoga. We're going to learn um, we're going to learn uh, whether or not um, Arnold um, what I like to think of is we're going to learn whether or not the Battle of Saratoga was Arnold's last stand. In other words, was Benedict Arnold willing to risk everything knowing that Horatio Gates did not like him, that Horatio Gates simply, did not believe in Arnold. He did not care for what Arnold stood for. But we're going to have to. But we're going to learn whether or not Arnold laid it out on the line. And then we're also going to learn after Saratoga where does Arnold go. So thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all next time. And thank you for being such uh, ardent listeners. And the good news is that we. Um, we met our goal. We um, got we got um, everything done that needed to be done. And uh, wherever you all may live in the world, I hope that you all uh, continue to stay safe. But thank you again for being such ardent listeners.